Hi, family. My name is Karina DeLeo. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I'd like to start off by saying that God is good all the time, even when I don't think so. And uh, this evening, uh, my prayer is that I make God the centerpiece of my talk, um, as well as um, us getting to know one another. Um, I was going to not use the questions, um, but at the very moment when um, Tim was sharing on them, I thought, well, perhaps that would be a better way to uh, allow us to get to know one another. So I think I will read them verbatim and see what pops out of me. Um, I had a different uh, thought in mind. I was going to share about um, the, surrender, the surrendering process of one's thinking. Like after we've um, put down the drink, um, how do we maintain um, our emotional sobriety? I may go over that um, some other time during these questions, but I, I want to take a look and see what happens here with these questions, what God has for us. So, why do I still go to AA after all these years? My sober date is December 26, 2001, and, um, and a lot of things had to change in order for that to stay the same. And I'm truly grateful that God delivered me into Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I am a real alcoholic. I'm textbook alcoholic. I know that because I read Alcoholics Anonymous, the textbook, right? And so um, the doctor's opinion uh, describes me perfectly. I have a mind that lies to me. It tells me that I can drink successfully uh, when thousands of experiences shows that I cannot. Um, and once I believe the lie and ingest the alcohol, um, it makes it virtually impossible for me to stop because I have the allergy. Um, I have an adverse reaction to alcohol in any form. Um, and uh, so I'm a goner. Um, and on top of all of that, I was born with the spiritual malady. And what that looks like in my person, in my life, in my heart, is that... Um, I'm always restless, irritable, and discontented um, if I don't have something to uh, get between me and me, the real me, right? And so um, why do I still come to AA after all these years? I'm almost coming up on 17 years. And my main purpose truly is to help other alcoholics. I go fishing. I love to meet newcomers. I love to um, engage, uh, hear their story, and really let them know that they have a fatal illness. Because I think that many of us, and I being one of them, um, did not understand that I had a fatal illness and that it was progressive. I knew that I drank too much and I knew that I did crazy things, but I really didn't know the nature of alcoholism until I read the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so um, I'm charged with the duty of um, reaching my hand out when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want to be the person to be there for that person. And I walk with a solution. Um, and so I can um, investigate and help somebody um, get out of the alcoholic pit that I was delivered here. You know. I was dead behind my eyes when I got here. And uh, I didn't think that there was hope. And you guys 
you know, I felt found shelter here. You guys came and um, really just opened your hearts to me, even though I didn't want it. And I was, you know, the, the girl with the, uh, the chip on her shoulder. Um, you know, God has transformed me inside and out. When I um, arrived here, I had yellow skin. My hair was falling out. I was about 80 pounds and uh, just very, very closed off. I was guarded, my heart was a stone, um, and I really wasn't interested in anybody. I was like, get away from me, you know, and, uh, but yet I was craving love, so it was that war within. But that's why I come back to AEA, to, to give, not to get. And uh, the second question is, what are you currently struggling with and how are you handling it using the program? Well, I'm very happy to say that I am in a really beautiful place, spiritually speaking, in that I, do, I am not struggling with anything. Um, and the reason for that is that I am a prayerful woman and I have a very strong relationship with my God. And um, I spend a lot of time with him and what I've come to know is that the more time I spend with God and the more time I acknowledge his presence, the more joyful I feel. And I kind of like it. I like to give illustrations in that, you know, when I was in my teens uh, growing up, the people that I met and the people that I hung around with, over time, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, I would start taking on, I would start to reflect a lot of what they, how they were talking, how they were acting, and so, likewise with God. The more I spend time with God, the more I can reflect and can start to um, have my mind be transformed into um, His thinking for me. And um, that's what we have. What we have in our eleven step uh, regarding um, intuitive thought, um, strength, and direction. These are the things I did not possess, and so. Um, I can tell you that there's a lot of circumstance in my life right now that two years ago, a year ago, I would be having a spin out. And this is not to say that my life is not without challenges. It just happens to be that I'm in a really good spot right now. And uh, so what's going on in my life right now is that God has blessed me with two homes. Um, I was homeless in 2006. So, you know, I'm just here to tell you that God is a restorative God. And uh, so we're in the process of selling our home that we um, built with good blood, sweat, and tears. Um, it served us for 10 years, and we got to give a lot of love to people and help a lot of other alcoholics find a, a solution in their life. Um, but as you can imagine, um, you know, this, you know, it could be stressful, although I'm, I, I'm not having that. Um, um, I am an amputee, as you notice, I had a little bit of a limp, and um, I'm having a little bit of a battle with Social Security, so my checks have been stopped, and they're telling me I owe them $15,000, and um, this isn't my first go-around with that, so that's going on. Um, God inspired me in April to start penning a book, and my editor slash um, friend had uh, called me this afternoon and said that my manuscript needs to be uh, fully written 
by the end of September, which I'm confident that God will pour that out of me. So, um, and I work with sponsees, and I have a family, and, you know, so there's stuff going on. But I can tell you that I feel very centered and not anxious at all. And the way that I get to do that, let's see if one of the questions... Uh, and so how am I handling it using the program? How I'm handling it using the program is, is I am absolutely taking possession of my thoughts. I'm not allowing them to take me captive. I'm using our 10th step in full bloom. There are many hidden treasures in the steps. And step 10 has been um, such a beautiful unfolding in this process for me. I've learned to shorten my spurts of emotional disaster in that the, you know, the moment I feel that I'm either trying to control or manipulate something that's outside a situation or circumstance, or um, if I have a negative thought about somebody, a resentment, or um, in the textbook it tells us if I'm going to be dishonest or self-seeking, the moment I, f I feel a thought or have a thought, I do not get on the train. I will not allow that, that thought to take root in my mind. And this has been a practice of mine. And I'm bearing that fruit now. I have, um, as a result of originally going through the process and going through the steps, um, God had plowed the soil of my heart and my sponsor dropped some seed um, we pulled out some roots, some really deep roots of resentment and um, all of the other character defects that were in there. And uh, my job, you know, after step three is um, all about renewing my mind. You know, the first three steps are basically a mirror to show me what's wrong, but it does not have, the mirror doesn't have an apparatus to actually, like if I were to be looking in the mirror, the mirror would tell me that I have a hair out of place but it cannot comb my hair for me because it doesn't have an apparatus to do that. So the, for after the third step, when I become reborn and my spirit is perfect, the rest of the steps are designed for me to renew my mind. And the way that I do that is by aligning my heart, because it's a heart issue, with the mind of God. And that's why we talk about um, turning our will and our life over to the care of God. Now, um, I think many people, I can only say for myself and the women that I've worked with are um, ignorant in uh, their pursuit of that, in that I thought that I had to give God my will. God doesn't want my will. That's what separates me from the animals. He promised that he would never take that from us. So you, what, what the whole objective is, is to align my will with his will, which means that I'm going to somehow get a shift in my thinking process. And the way that that happens is that the Holy Spirit starts to work in my heart. So it's not what God can do for me, it's what God can do in me. And that's what I'm interested in. God, what God and what the Holy Spirit is interested in me is what the sincerity of the condition of my heart is like, am I coming to him with sincerity? Or am I, you know, thinking that if I do 20 Hail Marys and I read my Bible, somehow that's going to make God move? 
like it's going to make him do something for me. And um, in my immaturity, in my spiritual walk, I did have th that thought. I thought that by doing all these things, if I went to church, and I was going to be a good girl. And then, therefore, then I deserved my cookie. Like, I need God to make stuff happen for me. Like, I need that relationship restored. And I need to have, you know, the house um, uh, rebuilt the way that I wanted it rebuilt on the time frame that I needed it to be on. And um, I quickly learned uh, through um, tears, frustration, inventory, sharing, um, and going back and pressing in because I've learned as a result of um, using the program and the steps, particularly step 11, where I learned to live this interior life. I'm no longer expecting to pull out of the material world what I think I need. All, I'm gonna say pretty much all these days of my work is done in the spiritual world. Um, that's where my work is done. The manifestation of my life is produced in the material world. So that's how you can see um, how my relationship with is with is with God. Just take a look at the fruit in my life, the joy that I have in relationships. Um, Paul, can you give me my, my jacket of cold? Um, the way that um, it's all about relationship, and the first relationship um, that needs to be authentic is the relationship that I have with God and intimate, this intimate relationship with God and uh, intimate meaning into me and see, into me and see. And this is um, when I'm in right relation with God and I open myself for correction. And the 10th step and the 11th step is all about entering a place of willingness um, it's a state of mind, a state of being where I become willing to allow God to chastise me if he need be, to correct me if need be. Um, I'm right now in the place where I am not needing that and I'm being led and guided and loved. And um, I think this year particularly, I, I feel like crying because I'm so in love with God, um, is that I used to learn by fear, and now I learn by love. And it's such an easier, softer way. Um, it takes a lot of time, it's perseverance. We, you know, we don't get like this overnight. I was defiant, um, closed-minded, stone-cold-hearted. Um, I rolled around in justifiable anger for years. You know, all of these things, God worked out in me through the steps, through Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and I get to live this beautiful life. Um, the next question is, what your, what's your current experience with the steps? Well, I think I just pretty well went over that. What's your current relationship with God? My current relationship with God is... Um, this might sound hokey, but I, you know, I'm married to God. God is, um, he showed his fidelity to me um, in many different ways. And the first way was uh, when I was delivered into Alcoholics Anonymous back in 1999, a shattered woman 
um, I knew that I didn't know him as I know him today, but I knew that the Holy Spirit had placed me there. Like I had no power to get there. My ignorance and my um, arrogance kept me drinking literally in a walk-in closet. And so um, our relationship has um, developed into this beautiful give and take of listening to each other. I can say that I know the voice of God, and it's, you know, it's not a physical, sometimes it's a physical voice, but very, very seldom. Um, it's kind of a knowing, and I know that he knows my voice. Um, it's sort of like my, my husband, in that we're very close, we've been with each other for 10 beautiful years, and I, if there's something going on, he doesn't even have to say a word, I could just look at his face and I could pretty much tell there's something that's not right, or some, or if he's happy, I can tell when he's happy, just by his facial expressions. And I feel that that's the type of relationship that I have with God. There's like a, a, a thing that's in my heart that kind of moves me around, that tells me what's pleasing to God and what's not, and what I need to ask him to help me to work on and through me. And, um, and so I think that that's, um, that can... You know, it does lose translation with words, but I can tell you that it's the best relationship that I've ever had um, since I could remember. And I cherish it and I guard it with my life. Um, and I don't say this to be arrogant or funny, um, but my husband knows that he's number two, and I know that I am number two in our relationship, and that's just the way that it needs to be. Um, and so, you know, and I submit myself to my husband. Um, I don't, um, uh, I would put myself under his correction also if um, God told me that that was what I needed to do. I don't have a problem with that. Um, and then it says, what's the most useful thing your sponsor has ever said? My current sponsor always says, where does it hurt? And I think that that's the most genuine, insightful thing that one could ask. Because it kind of just opens your heart, or at least it does mine, in a way that I want to take the journey and find out what is going on and what's wrong <coughs> and what am I afraid of. Uh, so I think that that is, and uh, my very first sponsor I think the first, uh, the most relevant thing that she had said to me, even though I didn't know it at the time, was, where is God in that? <laughs> and I just, I looked at it like a puppy dog sideways. I really didn't get it at that time. But um, I often hear that little voice um, when I'm, trying to go back into self-sufficiency, if you will. And when I go back into self-sufficiency, I am painfully aware that I am there because um, it's very hard. Life becomes hard. It's, it's like I have to do too much work out here. Like I, and um, So then I know, and, I, and, and thank God I, I have a place that I can go, um, which is my breath. 
that's where God lives in my heart. Thank you for letting me share. Hi, family. My name is Paul Julio. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And what she said. <laughs> no. no. Um, my sobriety date is September 1st, 2002. And for that, I'm truly blessed. And I did not quit drinking on that day. That was the day that God saw fit to separate me from alcohol. Because every time I quit drinking, I start drinking again. That's just my experience. Um, I'm going to do it a little differently than Karina did. Uh, I'm going to just do a little bit of my story, which will actually answer a lot of those questions. Um, most of my life, I drank a lot, and it didn't go well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I drank socially for 10 years, then I turned 13. And then, you know, I bought a bottle of Boone's Farm Apple Wine, and I started on a journey that just, um, spiraled downward until I came to a place where I just couldn't go nowhere else. Um, my sobriety began by accident. I didn't plan to get sober. I didn't come to AA to get sober. I had been around AA for a long, long time. My, my baby brother was 10 years sober when I came, 9 years sober when I came in. And uh, he had been trying to get me. I had been going to anniversaries. And, and it's just like, you, know, you people are very sick. I didn't need this. Uh, I heard your stories, and I didn't flip any cars, and I never got a DWI. Um, I hadn't done no hard time. No wives had left me. You know, and, and I was hearing, and if I get as bad as them, maybe I'll come to AA. And um, I had helped them to build the clubhouse that my brother was a member of, and they had a sign up in the front that said, sobriety can be fun. And I was like, I had a mindset. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't use drugs, but you can't go through life without a drink now and then. And I remember thinking that. Um, that was in 1988, and my sober date is in 2002. So for 14 more years, um, I had that belligerent denial that they talk about in our book. And, um, when I got here, I thought if I didn't drink, I would get better. And I'm going to share something that no one told me when I got here. Not drinking does not treat alcoholism. Drinking treats alcoholism. Um, if I had a problem with alcohol, you would have a different speaker here. I do not have a problem. Not now, not ever. I have a problem without alcohol. It's when I stop drinking that I become restless, irritable, discontent, prey to misery, depression, full of remorse, self-pity. And a drink sounds like a really good idea because the moment I touch the glass before I even sip it, I, I go, <sighs> because I know that it's going to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Thank God for alcohol. You know, Bill talks about it in his story. He said he discovered liquor. Only alcoholics discover liquor. Normal people just have a drink. Discovered <laughs> liquor. Yeah. He discovered liquor. But then what he says is, I was lonely and again turned to alcohol. 
So alcohol wasn't his problem, he was lonely. And alcohol was what he used to give him courage. Later in Bill's story, he's, men are jumping from towers of high finance. He says, should I kill myself? He says, no, not now. A few tumblers of gin would fix that. So thank God for alcohol. If he would have killed himself, we would not have AA. You know, and if we go through the story, you'll see it quite a few times. See, if alcohol were my problem, I would just have to stop drinking. But when I stop drinking, I become a irritable discontent. And I take the drink, I trigger the allergy, and I can't stop drinking. So when I got here, I did a lot of meetings, because, of course, meeting makers make it. That's what they said when I got here. And um, I was going to make a lot of meetings. I was a member of a clubhouse that had 31 meetings a week. I went to the mall and some outside meetings. So with 105 days, I had done 400 meetings. And I sat in my home group contemplating suicide. And the voices in my head were louder than ever. The pain in my heart was greater than ever. And if you could smile, I hated you. And I shared with that meeting that I, I felt worse than I had ever felt in my life. And I feel like committing suicide. And a, and a guy grabbed me at the end of that meeting and he said, have you done the work? And I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I told him I had a coffee commitment. He said, no, 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 but are you in the work? And I said, well, I chaired a Tuesday night meeting. He, he said, have you done the work in our textbook? And I said, well, I didn't know we had a textbook. And he said, well, the big book. I said, well, you know, I read that. Um, I got to a page and it said, you're now at step three. And I couldn't find step one or step two, so I put it down and I bought a 12 and 12 because they were numbered. And he said, great, that's a good book, but there's no directions in that book. It's just a bunch of stories. And that's the truth. That's a great book. I love it. But the directions are in our textbook. And he opened the book and he said, here, read this. I'll never forget it. It's like yesterday. Page 45, he said, lack of power. That was our dilemma. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought alcohol was my problem. He said, how long has it been since you had a drink? I said, 105 days. He said, well, how do you feel? So like, shit, I'm looking to kill myself. He said, obviously alcohol is not the problem. I scratched my head. I was like, oh, my God. And I said, well, what do I have to do? He said, funny you should ask. He opened up his book again. And on page 20, it says, hey, if you're an alcoholic and wants to get over it, you might already be asking, what do I have to do? <laughs> and I said, how did they know I was going to say that? He said, because the book was written for you. And if you're anything like me, this book was written for you. And um, we went through some stuff, and he asked me if I was willing to go to any lengths to recover. I said, mm, I, I think so, yes, I'm willing. He said, okay, what does willing mean? I said, well, it means I'm willing. And he said, well, what does that mean? And I didn't know. And, and he gave me a definition of willing that I've never forgotten. He said, willing is an action word. If you tell me that you're willing, you're going to do what this book asks you to do, whether you like it or not, believe it or not, think it's a good idea, want to do it. And I had to think about it for a minute. Suicide, get willing. It was tough. But I decided that I was willing to do this. And um, he said, great. He said, let's kneel down. You know, we discussed steps one and two for a little while. And we knelt down. We said the third step prayer. And I got up off my knees, and I was, I was feeling good. And I said, we did the third step. He said, no, we did the third step prayer. 
And I said, well, what's the difference? He said, Paul, the third step is a decision. He said, if we decide to go to Florida, we'll never get there. I said, why not? He said, because you got to call the airline, buy a plane ticket, pack a suitcase. you got to go to the airport. you got to get on the plane. He said, if you don't take those actions, he said, all you did was think about going to Florida. To make a decision requires action. So now that you're up off your knees, you have to do steps four to nine. Or you didn't do three. You just thought about it. So I started writing. And, and you know, I'm not going to go through this whole process, but the deal is that the only way to make a decision is to take the rest of the steps. You know, step two never really gets done. Steps two, my experience with step two. I didn't do step two. Step two happened to me. It's a destination. It happens at step 10. I, I had to admit that I'm insane in two, but in 10 I'm restored to sanity. God's gonna restore me. But it's telling me what happened. We came to believe that God could restore us to sanity. That happens to them after they did the steps. And I was looking to have this belief at step two. That's not my experience. I did not believe that God would restore me to sanity. Me and God had parted ways in 1969 when I had hit a nun and I had a fight with a priest and I got suspended, thrown out of Catholic school. I didn't need God anymore. And from 1969 till 2002, I was ducking God. And when I got here, I had to get rid of my old ideas, my prejudices about God, because God was gonna get me. I had to be rid of that. Um, you know, I, I do like some of the questions. Uh, the only reason I still come to AA is to see if I can bring something. Because I, I heard when I got here that this was a selfish program. And it's really not, it's a selfless program. If I'm still coming here to see what I can get, I missed it. I missed it totally. I only come in. It says we meet frequently so that newcomers can find the fellowship they seek. That's the only reason we meet frequently. There is, meetings do not treat alcoholism. Meetings are a place where I can find a path to recovery. Hopefully get on that path, go through that process, recover, and now I only come to give back. So if I'm still coming to see what I can get, I missed it. I missed it. You know, um, one of my favorites, you know, one of the, the questions, it's funny, I thought about it immediately, was, but what are you still struggling with? And in our book, there's a great little sentence. It says, in thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. We relax, we take it easy. We don't struggle. And that's my experience, that I don't struggle anymore. There hasn't been a struggle in my life in quite some time now. The next sentence says the right answer will come after we have tried this for a while. And I, I've been trying this for a while and I don't always get the right answer. I still fall short, but I don't struggle anymore. See, because my life is none of my business. Part of this program that I embrace is that I'm out of the results business. Results are of no importance to me anymore. I do the best I can at any given moment in trying to follow what I believe God's will would be. And I leave the results up to God. You know, none of the results make a difference. 
if I've done the best I can, whatever the outcome is, it's perfect. And that's been my experience for some time. Even though I might not think it's perfect, I might not like the results, I might not like the outcome. But the truth of the matter is, in God's world, everything is perfect. It just might not be perfect for me. And the reason I get to that is because one of the other questions, what is your current relationship with God like? You know, in our 11th step, it begins with, we're now at step 11. Suggest prayer and meditation. It says better men than us are using it. Then it gives me a little warning. It says it works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. So in my early recovery, I was struggling with a lot of stuff. And um, I went to one of my teachers. He wasn't my sponsor, just a teacher. And I, I asked him for some help. And he said, what's your prayer life like? And I said, the first thing I do every morning, before I get out of bed, I ask God, please keep me sober today. He said, why? Who are you? Why should God keep you sober today? Does God work for you? I was like, uh, uh, uh. I didn't know. That's what they told me to say. He said, Paul, you're supposed to be working for God. Maybe you should try asking God what you could do for him today instead of telling him what you think he should do for you. And it changed my entire sobriety. It changed everything. And from that day till now, that's how my day begins. I, I thank him for waking me because if you think you're a long clock walk, you bring it to the morgue. It's not going to wake anybody. God allowed me to wake up this morning. A lot of people did not wake up this morning when they were on clocks. That's just a fact. So I thank him. And then I ask him, Father, what can I do for you today? Please give me power to do that. And then the rest of the day is none of my business. That's my relationship with God today. I consider my plans, but God changes them constantly. And I'm, I'm okay with that. And one of the other questions, the most useful thing that your sponsor ever told you, and again, he wasn't my sponsor. It was the same individual who gave me that statement. I had been admiring this gentleman. I knew him from drinking. You know, I met him again in AA, and when I got here, he already had 14 years, why I hadn't seen him in so long. And, and I was admiring his sobriety. I was listening to the things he was saying, and it was so different than everything else I heard. And, and I went up to him one day after a meeting, and I said, you know, if I want to be like anybody in hell, I want to be like you. And he said, Paul, God doesn't need another Peter. He needs you to be Paul. He needs a Paul DeLeo. He does not need another Peter. And, and, and I got it. And I stopped trying to be like him. And I just started to follow my own path. And that also changed my entire life. God, each of us is uniquely useful. It says so right now, book. Each of us. There are people who only I can help, and then there are people who only Taylor can help, and there are people who only Jim can help, and there are people who only Karina can help. That, that's just a fact. You know, and the truth is I don't try to help everybody anymore. God always lets me know. My relationship with God allows me to be in a place where God talks to me with intuitive thoughts and decisions. I have come to rely on it. Um, it says so in our book. We should come to rely on it. And, and you know, as I walk this journey today, I have come to understand that there is no limit to where I can go. 
I can do anything. I can be anyone. God will allow me. But the truth is, none of it is of me. I take credit for nothing. The anonymity of our program, you know, in our tradition, is that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. It's not talking about me hiding my name. Uh, it's talking about me not taking credit. It's like making an anonymous donation. I don't sign the name, my name on the check when I make an anonymous donation. I give, you know, I give cash or I give a money order without my name because the deal is I don't take credit for anything I do here. I don't help anyone get sober. That's not my job. God gets people sober. I share my experience with people. I tell them what I did when I was at this area in the book. My experience will not get anybody sober. In the beginning of the book, it says we've written a book, we share our knowledge and experience. I have a lot of knowledge. I've read this book, I couldn't tell you how many hundreds of times. I also have a lot of experience. You know, it asked me, what's your current experience with the steps? Well, the deal is the steps, the numbers have fallen off. The steps aren't something I do. The steps have become my way of life. It says in our book, our way of living will have its advantages for, it doesn't say not drinking will have advantages. Not drinking didn't have a lot of advantages for me. Not drinking was pretty horrible for me, actually. I think being sober is one of the greatest causes of relapse. Because people stop drinking. And stopping drinking is horrible. Because now I become prey to misery and depression. I become full of remorse and self-pity. I, you know, all of the bedevilments, on page 52 we talk about the bedevilments, but on page 51 the book says, leaving aside the drink question, we tell why living was so unsatisfactory. That's when I'm not drinking. And, and that's the truth for me. I could not do this not drinking thing without this program in my life, which connected me to a God of my understanding, which gave me power, which means I'm no longer powerless over alcohol. And if we look at the first step, it says we admitted that we were powerless, not that we are. If I were still powerless over alcohol, you'd have another speaker. We passed a lot of bars on the way here. There is no way that I could have made it past all those bars without stopping just for a sip. If I were still powerless over alcohol, I have gained access to power. It says so, one fact. We are all agreed, the first hundred, write that. No, I'm sorry, it's 50 of the first hundred. It's in We Agnostics. On one fact, it says we are all agreed. We have gained access to and believe in a power greater than ourselves. I got access to power. So if I have access to power, it's like if there's a blackout, I got a generator. I don't have a dilemma. I start my generator, I plug in my TV, my refrigerator, my lights, my air conditioner, there's no dilemma. When, when a, there's a problem arises here, I have access to power. So I don't have a dilemma. I haven't had one in quite some time. That's because of my relationship with God. Not because I don't drink. It's not because I don't drink. I don't drink because I have a relationship with God. The side effect of my relationship with God is the fact that the drink problem has been solved. Actually, all my problems have been solved.
That's why I say I'm a recovered alcoholic. Recovering is used once in this book. And for me, to stay recovering means I'm going to stay sick. I don't want to be sick. There's such a um, little bitterness over people. Well, I always be recovering. You never be recovered. I don't want to think that I'm recovered. My ego. Well, listen, to think that God can't get me to a place called recovery is pretty sad. To think that God cannot get me to a place called recovered is pretty sad. And that's what we're going to try and talk about here. Forgiveness is a big part of that. Tomorrow we're going to have some topics that we're going to talk about. And forgiveness is a big part of being recovered. Um, I don't want to get off into that now, but tomorrow when we talk about forgiveness, I will definitely, because one of the things about forgiveness, I don't forgive someone for them, I forgive them for me. You know, the deal is that what was keeping me separate from God for a long time was my anger towards my father. And in our book, there's a great sentence. It says, anger is a dubious luxury we can't afford. But yet I was angry. I was so angry. And until I was able to forgive him, I could not get past that anger. So the truth is, I forgave him. Hey, it's, I, I don't know, somewhere, one of our things, it's like trying to pick up a hot coal to throw it at somebody. I get burned. You know, and the truth of the matter is, my life today is really beyond my wildest dreams. My wife touched on a lot of stuff. That's because God is the most important relationship in my life. More important than my wife, more important than my father, than my nephew. My first priority in life is my relationship with God. Everything else falls into place when my relationship with God is right. And because of that relationship, I don't worry, I don't have problems. My life is beyond my wildest dreams. I had some pretty wild dreams. Um, and I think I'm gonna end it with that. Thank you guys for having me. Over uh, in Australia uh, on the 9th of October 1992, that's something that a lot of people in my first home group used to say. It's not, you don't have a right to speak of means of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a privilege. Uh, so I'm really uh, I'm privileged to be here and privileged to. Uh, nice to meet some new people. Um, my home group is uh, Third Step One Flight Up uh, in Brooklyn, Parkside, Brooklyn. And as I said, my sobriety date is the 9th of October 1992. And um, what I might just do just really briefly now is just as briefly as I can uh, share um, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, uh, just so you have some uh, context for me, and then tomorrow we'll kind of flesh that out a little bit more. I'm glad there's a rubric for sharing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, uh, because um, if there wasn't, I would tell you all kinds of things. So I was a terrible, terrible liar uh, when I drank, uh, and so I'm glad that Alcoholics Anonymous suggests that, that this is what we do. And I also love that my first sponsor used to say his favorite part of the book is that part of the doctor's opinion where he says, you can rely absolutely on anything these men say about themselves. And he said to me, he said, so if I'm telling you about that guy over there, or those people over there, or that group over there, you can't rely absolutely on everything I say. You can only rely uh, on what I say about myself. And that's what makes Alcoholics Anonymous not therapy. We don't offer theories about each other's problems here. You come to me with a problem, 
and I simply say, oh, I've had a problem like that, and, and, and this is what I found useful. If I haven't had that problem, I might say to you, why don't you go speak to Joe? Maybe he's had that problem. But I can't theorize with you about what, uh, what, what your problems are. So, um, so I guess uh, I think the first thing to say is um, my earliest memories of life are of standing in the playground and watching other kids play and thinking, what are they doing? Uh, and, and desperately wanting to join uh, and desperately wanting them to get the away from me. And I had the same experience when I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the beginning of 1992. It was in a small Australian um, country town and I simultaneously wanted desperately to join and I wanted desperately to get a long way away from you people. Um, and when I was, so I was a very, very nervous, um, unhappy little kid. And when I was about 15, something happened which I didn't pay much attention to because it didn't seem to be that important. Uh, and what it was, was it was a bottle of nice expensive red wine and my sister told me to drink it and what I discovered was that when I was drunk, uh, that irritability, restlessness and discontent went away. That fear, that anxiety, the depression, the difficulty with living, the paranoid voices in my head, uh, they all went away and I became incredibly disinhibited and I became a different person. Where I am, um, where I got sober, there's always a guy um, it was very hot where I got sober, uh, where I lived. And there's always a guy at the party who takes his clothes off. Uh, and I was that guy. Uh, and, and I have to say, I mean, uh, Tim, who's an old friend of mine, I'm not that guy. But, but when I'm drunk, I'm that guy. Uh, and, then, uh, and then other things might happen. Like I might not be getting enough attention. So I'll go into the bathroom and I'll go through your medicine cabinet and I might swallow a, a load of pills and then come out and announce to the party that I've tried to kill myself. And so the whole party then becomes about me and calling the cops and calling the ambulance and this is the type of you know, crazy stuff that I support. And also, you know, um, mental hospitals have been talked about here tonight and I, I can absolutely relate. At the end of my drinking in 1992, I was uh, uh, admitted to a, a psychiatric hospital, a state-run psychiatric hospital. Uh, in, in, in the state where I'm from, in Australia, and still filled with, with denial and, and not understood. They said, we're detoxing you. And I go, why would you be detoxing me? You only detox alcoholics. And alcoholics live under bridges and don't have shoes, and, and I've got some money in the bank and a car. Um, I can't possibly be an alcoholic. Um, and the other thing I used to think to myself is that you would drink too if you had the sort of problems I had, the sort of difficulties, fears, anxieties with living, terrible depression, and secrets that would curl your toenails. You would drink too. Uh, and, and I didn't realize that really it's just me defining alcoholism. And it's, it's been said much more eloquently um, than, than I could say it tonight, is that, you know, when I finally came to Alcoholics Anonymous, someone came up to me and said, do you have a problem uh, with alcohol? Uh, he said, then I've got a great solution for you. Stop drinking. But if you stop drinking and your life gradually becomes so unbearable that you want to kill yourself, admit yourself to a psychiatric hospital, or drink again in order to get some relief from what's going on in your head, then you may be an alcoholic. And in that way, that gentleman explained to me the difference between the problem drinker and the alcoholic. Uh, and so, um, anyway, long story short, I found my way to Alcoholics Anonymous 
through a series of, um, um, you know, as Cassie says, bad breaks and misunderstandings. And um, I was living with my parents who lived in a retirement village. You know, I was 23, a 23 year old kid, you know, it was like, you know, this, who was like obsessed with being hip, slick, and cool. And I'm like living with my, my parents in a retirement village uh, and just doing a lot of meetings of AA. And still, I, I didn't really believe I was an alcoholic. Uh, I just, I, I came to these meetings because you were nice to me and you remembered my name. And I, I was trying to make a point of saying that, is that I'm very easily flattered. All you have to do to flatter me is remember my name. And that's what they did. I'd walk into those meetings and those men and women would say, hey, Anthony, you want a cup of tea or you want a coffee or have a biscuit? Or... Um, and so I try and do that myself today, uh, to welcome people, to remember their names, um, to welcome them to Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, um, really long story short, I, uh, I was sober a few days, living with my parents, going to meetings, and I threatened to kill myself from the floor of a meeting. And I wound up back at my parents' place with a man from that meeting. There was a big book on the coffee table between us, and I said the magic words. I said, what do I have to do? Uh, and luckily, he loved me enough to tell me the truth. He didn't lie to me. Uh, and he picked up the book, and he literally threw it at me. And I remember it sailing through the air at me. Uh, and he said, you need to begin to read this. And I couldn't read, I had a stutter, terrible, terrible stutter. Um, and so he sat with me outside my parents' house and he would read a paragraph and I would read a paragraph. We read all night. We read through the night uh, until the sun was coming up, until the end of the chapter, more about alcoholism. And I began to admit that maybe I was an alcoholic. It was easy for me to admit that my life was unmanageable because I'd just been thrown out of a psychiatric hospital. Um, that man became my sponsor. And, um, um, and uh, one day at a time, since then, I haven't found it necessary uh, to pick up uh, a drink. But um, what happens, I believe, is that we get sober and, and we, we, we essentially get two promises. One is that we get to stay sober. Um, and the other is that we get to be real human beings in the world, having real relationships with real people. We don't get to be special or woo-woo or it's... Um, we just get to be real and hopefully we get to be helpful. Um, and those, um, uh, you know, like uh, over the, the last 26 years, a lot of stuff's happened. My father died, I've had great jobs, I've had no work, I've had terrible difficulties in my relationships, I've had great, you know, uh, experiences in my relationships. Um, so I get to be, in other words, a real human being, not special, not amazing, just a real human being. Um, I think there's lots of other things to say, but I guess we'll get to those tomorrow when, when, we, when we speak tomorrow. Um, one of the things, I love some of the, the questions on the icebreaker, and one of the questions I loved, I was talking to my friend Tim and James about today, was I, I love that question, what's the, the best thing your sponsor ever said to you? And my sponsor says, I think probably the best thing he ever says to me is, um, my husband's name is Peter, uh, and I'm notorious for badgering him uh, mercilessly. And so my sponsor, Rick, uh, he will often send me an email and there'll be nothing in the body of the email. And all it will say in the subject heading is, leave Peter alone. <laughs> so I think the, the best thing my sponsor's ever said to me is to shut up, shut your mouth, shut your mouth. Um, and that's one of the most spiritual things I can do, is keep my mouth shut and listen. 
Um, and you know, we'll talk about service and making amends and um, the other kind of wonderful parts of the program. And hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to speak a little bit about spiritual materialism. You know, that thing where you come in and you kind of get to the 11th step, and it's kind of amazing. And your life is looking really great, and you've got all the terrific things in your life. Um, and we can talk about how that makes you a taker in Alcoholics Anonymous, not a giver, because the steps finish at 12, not 11. Um, and I'm sort of, I, just, I, I feel it's so important uh, is that if you're not willing to give back what's been given to you, then, then I'm not willing to work with you. Um, but um, we can save those things for tomorrow. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great privilege to be here. I'm really um, excited to hear what other people have to say. And uh, thanks for asking me to share. Hi everybody, I'm Bill Alcoholic. So, how many in here have uh, like less than six months sobriety? Cool. I'm glad you're here. So, one of the things that I will tell you about me is when I came into AA, I felt like the world was a problem. Drugs and alcohol weren't. Everybody told me I had a problem, and I didn't believe it. Except for, I thought, you all were my problem. So I was 11 years old when I started drinking, and that sounds young by some people's standards, but I've been hearing some tales, you know. Uh, at 11 years old, I discovered something that I had not had before, and that was freedom from fear, that relief. I felt like for the first time in my whole life, if my dad beat me, I didn't care. I felt like for the first time in my life, if I'm in trouble at school again, I don't care. It's really kind of that simple. The doctor's opinion talks about why I drink. You know, when I went to a lot of treatment centers and had a lot of well-meaning therapists who would get into the groove of this, why do you drink? Let me tell you why you drink. And it's really simple. I drink because I like the effect produced, period. I can weave all kinds of tales, and you know, being in enough therapy or nut wards or with all kinds of well-meaning therapists and ministers and priests who wanted to help me, I could tell you that I wanted to do better and I wanted to be better, but I couldn't. There was something within me that just stopped me from being able to do better. And I would sit either in my parents' house, or maybe in a juvie center, or later on in some other institutions, and the, the repeating thought was, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And I had a lot of people trying to tell me. <laughs> they all knew what was wrong with me in their way. And I even had some real alcoholics come trying to educate me in these different facilities to, to to tell me what was wrong with me. But what I heard was, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you gotta change and you man up. And I did hear that from my father, as he was usually beating me, but that's, that's not why I'm an alcoholic. So I'm not gonna get into all those details of all that stuff, but trust me, I drank because I loved the effect produced. It got me out of right here, right now, into somewhere magical that just put me into, ah, uh, 
was that simple. As I progressed in this illness, or as it progressed on me, the, con the progression started to set in. I wanted a little more, and I wanted a little more often, right? I got into a little more trouble, and it started to happen a little more often. I had people who loved me, and I knew they loved me, tell me they couldn't be around me anymore. I had people that loved me that I could see my actions or inactions was causing them emotional pain. You know, I've heard this said by other people, and this was also my experience. I can remember my mother sobbing and crying after I've like overdosed one more time. One more time out of treatment, swearing I'm going to do good, and there I am all messed up again, crying, tears running down her cheeks, saying, can't you see what you're doing to us? And here's this crap that I heard somewhere else. I go, oh, my, ain't hurt anybody but me. And I've since heard this from other people. This isn't just, you know, my form of selfishness. Apparently, it, it runs a little rampant in people like me. So what happens is I get involved and committed to this alcoholic lifestyle. And I start taking all kinds of other substances. And one of, these, one of the things that I heard that fit me so well was I backdoored into Alcoholics Anonymous through a bunch of other substances and a 10-year run on some opiates and a bunch of other craziness and criminal activities. And a guy looked at me one time when I was going to NA and he says, tell me about your experience with alcohol. I said, well, I don't know, it's not my big problem today. You know, I got a case and I got this and it's all about that. And he said, tell me about it. And I said, oh man, I was 11 years old. I started drinking, I couldn't stop. When I was 11 years old, I couldn't wait when I was stopped. I, ended, I was in jail at 12. I was uh, my first treatment center, adolescent treatment center at 12. And by the time I was 12, I knew I was an alcoholic because of what, you, what they all told me. But I didn't get it. I didn't know it. So I would comply. I would comply. They would say, you need to do this. You need to, here's your packet. You know, the treatment style packet. Here's, we're going to do your first step. And then we're going to do your second step. A lot of these people, again, were very well-meaning, but they didn't have this with me. And I needed, and I didn't know I needed it, I needed identification. I needed somebody that I could look at, that I could say, that guy cleaned up pretty good. I never heard, I never, never heard him talk before, but you know what? He was like me. Because I came in here feeling like I was so different, so unique, and you know, like I said, if you had my problems, you would have to drink too, right? So I'm feeling this way like I'm the victim of the world. And I hear these guys talk, and I go, they were like me, they're not like that now. Which got me to thinking, what they do, right? So I started to listen for what they did. Now, I still wasn't ready to surrender because I'm in the compliance mode. And a lot, of you, a lot of you will know that there's a big difference between compliance and surrender. And if you don't know, and you stick around here long enough, you'll learn. <laughs> or you go out there, maybe you'll learn if you stay alive. So as I started to comply and go to meetings, the words that I heard at my first meetings, I have no idea. I have no idea. 
What I heard in the first meetings was the symphony of laughter, the acceptance, the friendship, somebody telling me to come back, people clustering around me after the fact. I don't know how they knew I was new, you know, but we don't, right? They knew I was new and they knew I needed comfort more than I needed mental stuff. As I got comforted and as I felt like I fit in and I could hear the symphony of the love and the mystery start to unveil, it caught my heart. It didn't catch my head, it caught my heart. And I'd love to tell you that I got in AA and fell in love and stayed. Not my story. I came in, did the dance, thanks, I got this, I turned it into a mental exercise and thought I could fix me, and off I went again. And there, I, you know, like in our book, it talks about one more trip to the asylum. It says for Jim, but it could very well be for Bill. And each time that I would go back out and do this stuff, I would realize I thought I had this, and I don't. Repeating that first step experience of me sitting on my bed going, what is wrong with me? I want to do better, and I can't do better. There's something wrong with me. So as I start to, as life, as an alcoholic and a drug addict starts to pound on me, I get to a place where I'm faced with a long prison sentence and all the ripple effects and all the repercussions start to roll in and the first step experience nails me. I can't do this alone. I don't know what to do. And from deep down within me, and it's been said by other speakers so I can relate, came this little voice that became very loud and vibrated through my whole being and said, help. I need help, I can't do this. And I'm not gonna get into a fifth step, but I was, uh, I put myself in a lot of deadly and death-defying situations. And for the first time, it came out of me, deep down within, I need help and I don't wanna die. Then some surrenders showed up. So I will do anything to not live that way, not feel this way again. You all were there. <laughs> Maybe not individually, but AA was there and it helped pick up the pieces of this guy that was so broken. I didn't know what was wrong with me and I didn't know what the help would look like. But I knew I needed it. And the help showed up. And I love AA. And we'll get into a whole bunch more stuff I'm guessing tomorrow. But thank you all for being here. Thank you for uh, inviting me to come. And thank you for the previous speakers who were much more eloquent than I am. And I'm grateful to be involved and committed to the process of recovery. James, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, James. My sobriety date is the 18th of December of 2002. Um, but that's not the first time I got sober. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. I um, <clears throat> left um, university at the age of uh, 22 and I moved to London. 
Um, and it was a city that was new to me, and I found myself there on my own because I didn't really have any friends there at all. And um, I saw people of my age around me sort of getting on with their lives, and they were doing things like making friends with people, and they were getting jobs, and they were excited about their lives. They were excited about the future, as you should be at that age. Uh, and they were getting into relationships, and they were um, having fun, and they were going clubbing, and they were having things like hobbies. <laughs> People had hobbies. <laughs> and they were sort of building up their lives. They were doing the normal things, and I saw them sort of earning money and getting mortgages and all the rest of it. And I was there thinking, how the hell? How the hell do you do this? Um, and I was in my little bed sitting room in, in North London, feeling incredibly sorry for myself and feeling that I'd been dealt a raw deal and um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't face it. I couldn't, I couldn't see how you did all this. I couldn't see how, how, you, how, how you worked life in that way and I couldn't face it. I was too frightened to face it. And I knew what the answer was. I knew what the answer was because I'd always drunk um, and you know they talk about sometimes crossing a line. I can tell you almost to the day when I crossed the line. Because I made a decision. I thought, I, know, I was sitting in that bed sitting room. I was frightened. I was lonely. I thought, what the hell am I doing here? And I made a decision to go to the, to the local off-license and to buy myself some beer. And to take it back and to drink it on my own. And that set the pattern of the next 13 years of my life because it absolutely worked. It, abso it did what I knew it would do. It did what I knew it would do. And I, I was always inclined to be a sort of solitary drinker. You know, as life went on, yes, I, I made friends. I didn't like many of them, but I, <laughs> I made friends. And, um, and um, I all... And I drank with those friends, but I always wanted to be on my own. I always wanted to finish the job properly, and, and I felt I could do that on my own. Uh, and what, what that alcohol did for me in that bed-sitting room in London in 1982 is that it made all these things, these friends and this success in life, it made it all seem possible. It, I, I believed that it was all about to happen. Once I just had a few cans of beer, I believed that these friends, they're just around the corner. They're, just, they're going to come to me. The, the, the success in the job, it's going to come to me. It, it was all possible because alcohol allowed me to fantasize. It, it, it has always lied to me. It has always lied to me. Uh, and that's how the lies started, it, it, by, by making everything seem as though it was within reach. And of course, what happens is the next day when you're not drinking, you just revert. And so the only way to fix that is to drink again. And that's what happened, and it just became progressive. And within a very short period of time, I was, I was hooked on it, I was a daily drinker, 
and I drank every day for 13 years, and I drank to get drunk, and I drank to blackout, and that's what I did. And, and, and what, the, what the booze did <coughs> is that it told me the lie, but it kept changing the lie. Because, first of all, it says, well, this is a good thing. It's a good thing because it, it's, it's sort of relieving you of the, of the fear and the tension and, and all the rest of it. And that's, a, that's excellent. So that, that's a good thing to do. That was the first lie it told me. And then, and then um, it, it started to tell me when it became apparent to me that I was having trouble stopping doing this or even regulating it. It started to tell me, well, it's not that bad. You know, alcoholism told me it's, it's not that bad. There are people who are far worse off than you. Okay, so just keep at it. So that was the second lie. And then by the end of it, by the end of, of my active alcoholism, the lie had changed again because I couldn't ignore the fact that I could not stop drinking, that I was very sick, that I was getting arrested, um, that I was a very, very unwell man. Uh, and what the, the lie then morphed and it changed into this. What else have you got? If you stop this, there's nothing else. This is the only thing that gives you any satisfaction. And if you stop this, there's nothing for you. You might as well end it. That's what it told me. That was the lie that it told me. And it told me that lie for years. And it was that lie that kept me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1995. And it was, the, it was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to me. And I experienced a psychic change within a relatively short space of time. Because I got a sponsor and I started, I started, and I underline the word started, to work the steps. And I found the, the support and the love of the fellowship there for me. Even though I didn't really want it, I was one of these people who's already been described as somebody who you know, had a sort of solid um, notice on their forehead. But, but they weren't having that. And, um, and they made, I remember going to one particular meeting that Tim used to go to. And that was the first meeting I went to. And I used to go in just after it had started and scuttle off at the end, you know, before anybody could talk to me. Um, and um, there was a guy there called Doug, an American guy called Doug, who'd spotted this activity. And he wasn't having it. And he, um, he intercepted me one day. And he said, you know, you're going to come for coffee. I said, no, I'm terribly busy. He said, no, you're not. You're going to come for coffee with us. He wasn't having it, you know. And um, that, was his, that was his modus operandi. And it was that which saved me, you know. It was that sort of tough love, I suppose you could call it, which, which was one of the things that saved me. I say I had a psychic change. Of course, psychic changes can go both ways, you know. Um, change for the good and change for the bad. And seven years down the line, there was a change for the bad. Why did that happen? Well, I'm afraid it's a very boring explanation. I stopped doing it. I stopped doing it. Um, and um, I stopped doing it six months, I should think, or so before I drank again. And I moved to Bristol, which is where I now live. Um, and I, I went to a few meetings in Bristol, but really out of habit rather than anything else. I didn't get a sponsor. 
I ceased speaking to the sponsor who I'd had in London, and I stopped doing it. And there came a point a little way down the line that, because life goes on, and, um, and, and things became difficult in my life, and I became very unhappy because of external circumstances. It doesn't particularly matter what they are. And, and I didn't hesitate to drink. I did not hesitate. I had no power. I had no power. The power had gone, and I had no connection to it. Uh, and I knew what would solve the problem, and I immediately reached for it, you know. And I, and I drank exactly as I'd drunk before, on my own, and I drank as much as I could, and I drank till I was ill and blacked out. You know, that's what I did, because that's what I've always done. And thank God, um, it lasted only that night, because I so frightened myself that I came back uh, into the fellowship in Bristol. And I think for the first time, probably, really took this thing seriously. And I got a sponsor who was very, very much a big book sponsor. And he took me through the steps from beginning to end. I'd never really, I'm going to talk a little bit tomorrow about six and seven. I'd never really been aware of six and seven, if I'm, if I'm truthful, the first time round. But I sure became aware of them with this guy. Uh, and he saved, he saved my life. And my life is now better than it's ever been. And the reason it's better than it's ever been is because of this. And because I do, I, I do it to the best of my ability and I throw myself into it and I do the things which are suggested. Uh, and if you do that, there is a fantastic life. That's my experience. There is a fantastic life. You don't have to be this isolated, miserable, unhappy creature on your own. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm Evan. I'm an alcoholic. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to participate. It's an honor and a privilege to uh, be in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and especially to do a panel like this. So thank you so much. Um, so let's see my stance. I'm a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn. Uh, my sobriety date is March the 1st, 1988. I have a home group, the Atlantic Group. Um, work the steps, I got a whole bunch of sponsees, and I stay busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how I stay here, day to time, comfortable more often than not in my own skin, as a result of the program of action that we heard talked about tonight. Thank you so much for kicking us off. I love the format, and I love the questions. It's very thought-provoking, you know. Um, my sponsor, the best thing she said, my current sponsor, the best thing she ever shared with me that I stole, is uh, she says, I have alcoholism, not alcoholism, which is the reason why I'm still active in Alcoholics Anonymous after all these years. Because, you know, if I treat my alcoholism, I'm okay. And if I don't, I'm not. Because it, it creeps back in slowly. 
if I get lazy and I, you know, don't do all the actions that we do in the steps, I'll start to feel scratchy and itchy. And I, and I, then I, you know, my clothes are tight. It's the same clothes. My skin's tight. And then I'm short-tempered, and I, then I begin to talk a little ugly to my mother. Um, and she doesn't deserve that. Then I become remorseful because I don't like the way that I spoke to her. And then I, you know, and that's like, that's the alcoholism. That's what it looks like, and that's the treatment. Um, very lucky when I was newly, so I got, actually I got clean in a sister fellowship. Um, the best thing I learned as I was here for a little while is that I really, that I'm an alcoholic. Um, I didn't know that. I, I was so out of my mind when I came. I had no idea what was wrong with me. I had no idea what was going on. I knew something was wrong. I mean, I was unemployed, unemployable, living at home with my parents, um, suicidal, uh, couldn't sleep. I was just physically really beaten up, purple, black circles under my eye, looked like a raccoon. Uh, just destroyed. I knew that I had a problem with drugs. I thought I was just a party girl and I got a little carried away. Uh, carried away where I was unemployable for like three or four years in my bottom. And um, so I, you know, I didn't really know what was going on. I went to a, a detox slash rehab. They brought us meetings every night. I fell in love with all the fellowships. I, I always loved alcoholics and drug addicts. I just didn't know any sober ones. So when the sober ones came to the detox, I was like, oh my God, my people. You know, here are my people. And I had a, I had a, a whole change of, I had a spiritual experience in the facility because I was like, I am in love with these people. I am going to follow them to the ends of the earth because I love, I was like, I'm going to do whatever they do. It was just remarkable. And that really was like, that was like my second came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. These people were sane and they were me. And I knew that I saw that in them. And that was my, my, you know, that was my moment. I'm going to do whatever they do. And if they could do it, I could do it. And that's what they said. That we have a program of living that works for people like us. Please come. We're going to. This is what I heard, which is remarkable because I never listened to anyone. I didn't understand what willful was. You know, I just did whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And then suddenly, these people caught my attention, and I became willing to do whatever they recommended, even though I had no idea what they were talking about, and I didn't understand anything. But pride got me sober because I was too embarrassed to, to ask questions. So I would just follow everybody and do what they said and I figured I'll figure it out or it'll be revealed to me. Like I'll just stay quiet and I'll know, I'll know after. I just won't say anything. I had fear of people and fear of looking bad. I didn't know that's what that was. I didn't even know I had fear because I lived in so much fear. That's all I knew. I didn't know there was a way to be not afraid until I began to be less afraid and I could tell the difference between being afraid all the time and not being afraid all the time. And that's how I knew fear was being removed. But I didn't know. I was in fear every day of my life. I didn't know. What do they think of me? I can't say anything. I'm going to look stupid. Don't ask questions. Keep your mouth shut. Just sit there. Try and mimic them. Do what they do. And it'll be okay. And part of that is okay. At some point, I need to go from submission to real surrender. But that kind of is like it's the grace of God. It happens from the action. So they, they were like, they did not mince words. And they said, listen, 
you know, what I heard was, you're in bigger trouble than you know. And I, I really, I got that, like something was bigger going on. I didn't really understand what was happening. You're in way bigger trouble than you know. And thank God we don't, thank God I didn't know the full implication of what I was up against in detox, because I think I would have gone out the window. Again, that's what God, uh, God will give you what more than you, won't give you more than you can handle. So you, that, that piece of awareness is just e equal to what you need to do on that day. Is that what it means to me? So I just was like in love with the people. I said, um, and I had a, an Eskimo in detox. And my first, you know, the first morning sober, I go sashaying into the, you know, the day room, you know, all that. Um, and there's Craig, nice Jewish gay boy from Queens, who was doing the very thing that I was doing only in the other borough. And he was like, where'd you get the T-shirt? That was it. Me and Craig, best friends. And he, told, he knew everything that we needed to do because he was sober for three weeks. <laughs> but truth be told, he knew absolutely everything we needed to do. And that was, he was picking me up from detox with my bag of laundry and taking me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or wherever we went before I went home. And we were going to go to meetings. And we ran around going to meetings like we were going to club openings. And that was my start in, in recovery, and I got a sponsor. Of course, you know, I wanted um, Joan Falk to be my sponsor, but she was busy. Um, but little, little Valerie became my sponsor. She was uh, 18 and had two years. That's who I identified with. So the, the gig is just, you know, commit to what you can do and surrender that girl every day and just do the next thing that you're available for. And it was... And the thing, why I go to meetings, and I'm so grateful that at some point, you know, the, the smoke cleared, I got busy, I made a commitment to do this thing, and as more was revealed, I did the next piece. And they said, you know, you, you, you have to just change everything about you. This is, your problem is way bigger than you know, and you're gonna see it, and when you see it, you have to keep working the step. You have to work the steps. The drugs and the alcohol are a symptom of the problem, if you don't get down to causes and conditions, you're a goner. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's what they said, that's what I heard. And I said, you know what? I bet that's the truth. I knew something, and they spoke to something else. And I knew in my heart they were right. I didn't understand what that looked like in me, because I was too focused and I was out of touch with my own reality. I didn't know what it meant like. I didn't know what it looked like in my life. I, I knew they were right. I just couldn't see the seeds of it. And the, you know, the, it's like uh, alcoholism is like an octopus. It's like arms of all different things moving around. I couldn't understand how what you know how it all came together, and I was so unmanageable. But as I sobered up, that stuff became apparent. And I think the best piece of information is that I finally understood that I had alcoholism, and that's the biggest risk. With my history and all the you know party girl, going to the clubs, you know, vile coke, and I never never met a pill I didn't like or anything else. You know what I'm saying? So I'm at greater risk because of my history to pick up a drink because if I want to hear, oh, you were just with the wrong people, you boop, 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 boop. So it was really important at some point to take a look at the drinking by itself and to see how what that looked like, even though it was overshadowed by all the other stuff. What did the alcohol, what did the alcohol look like in, in your life? And that phenomenon of craving, what did that look like? I didn't have like a right, who even knew what the hell was going on? But, I, look, I isolated incidents where I went out to just, you know, have a cocktail. There was there no such thing in my life. I go out, the next thing I know, it's, there's an after-hours club three states away, 
it's, that's what the phenomenon. Once I'm on, I'm on. There's no off switch. Uh, I'm tired, I had enough. I never uttered those words in my life. You know, that's, that's what makes me different from the, even the hard, my girlfriend is a good, she's a hard drinker. The girl could really, let me tell you, she could toe the line. I'm, 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 I'm proud of her. Drink the drink, dance the dance, line for line. And then she says something that I don't understand. All right, I've had enough, of let's go. It's fine, there's, there's an after hours club, they're going. She's like, what are you, out of your mind? Yes, I am out of my mind. That's, who, that's, that's the girl that came here. And the girl that stays here is the girl that goes to meetings, does service, and does the whole deal. And service is magical. Nothing will change how I feel about my, just in my own life, than being of service to others. And I was, you don't even have to be here for a long time to be of service. I had the magic of service as a newcomer, and that's what kept me coming back. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from our panelists and talking about real good sobriety. So thanks. Hi, my name is Joe McFadden. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. And because of the loving grace of God, the 12 steps, a sponsor who's never read that part in the big book that says love and tolerance of others is our code and who considers his uh, job in Alcoholics Anonymous to comfort me when I'm afflicted and afflict me when I'm comfortable. And the 12 steps and a higher power that it led me to, I haven't found it necessary to face life or escape life by taking a drink or doing any outside issues since June 14th, 1993. And for that, I owe you people my life. And the other thing I'd like to say is I believe sobriety is like sex. If you ain't enjoying it, you're doing something wrong. But I thought about that when they told me that in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought about the first time I had sex. I was scared. It was dark. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was alone. <laughs> and you see, that's the gift here tonight. You don't have to be alone. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the person that you're looking at tonight is not indicative of the person that landed on the doorsteps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So very briefly, I'm going to share with you not what it was like. It's still the same. I'm going to share with you what I was like. I'm not the same. When I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous, it was from a failed suicide attempt. We talked about, they, they did such a wonderful job. They talk about being restless, irritable, discontented. The doctor's opinion goes on and says, I feel like a maladjusted life, like an outright mental defective, full flight from reality. And the 12 and 12 goes a little better than that. It says, even though I'm no longer drinking, I still suffer the pangs of anxious apartness. You see, if you're an alcoholic, your problem is not alcohol. If you're an alcoholic, the kind that is described in the big book, your problem is not alcohol, your solution is alcohol, your problem is sobriety. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, it was from a failed suicide attempt. I took 38 Xanax, drank a half a gallon of Reunite, called Jim and Tammy Faye, told them that when I died, I was going to cop a plea with the devil and I was going to come back and haunt those old timers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I passed out, they, I woke up, I was in the Bear County Hospital. From there I found out that I was such a loser I didn't even kill myself and I jumped out the window to my death but I was on the first floor. From that point they took me in a straitjacket over to the Texas State Insane Asylum where I enjoyed, ladies and gentlemen, not the first time, but I enjoyed 81 days of 37 shock treatments. From there, when I was there, the lady said, listen, 
I got kicked out of the Navy 17 years ago. I'm a 16-year sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me tell you something, you little SOB. I see you coming in and out of AA. You come there to pick up those girls in those halfway houses, and you're stoned when you come. She goes, I'm going to tell you something. Regardless of what you read, regardless of what any other counselor had told you, Alcoholics Anonymous cannot, will not, never has, never will, and it's absolutely impossible to fail, provided you do some things. You never got a big book. I don't want you in any of my therapy sessions telling me that AA doesn't work. You never got a big book. You never read the steps. You never took the steps. You never were of service to others. Alcoholics Anonymous will not work for you because you don't work for Alcoholics Anonymous. She says, I know a man who got his desire chip from Bill Wilson February 6, 1957. He said he's willing to work with you if you give him a call. I called him. And he told me some things that I'll talk about tomorrow. But let me tell you where I was. I weighed 370 pounds. I was awarded the state of Texas MHMR, and that stands for mental health, mental retardation. I was getting $486 a month for SSI. The pro I was court ordered to take 14 pills a day to sedate the intensity of my emotions. And the prognosis was I couldn't even hold a job doing dishes because that would be too much pressure for me. After getting out, I went over and I went to Mr. Willis's office. I took the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a product of that, I'm here tonight. God will not do one thing for anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. He won't do for everybody. I don't care what anybody's told you. Relapse is not a part of recovery. There are only, there are only it tells us on page 58, there are those who cannot or will not completely accept this simple program. If you take, you're either going to be a will not or a cannot, or you're going to accept this program, this simple program. And if you accept this simple program, we've got a wonderful life for you. Cannots and will nots. And what's that mean? This is not an academic mental process. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about education or information. It's about transformation, and we have a way to go about that. You will not change. If you come to Alcoholics Anonymous to change, you're going to get drunk or worse. We come to Alcoholics Anonymous to be changed. That's what happened to me, ladies and gentlemen. I was changed. It was through nothing of my own. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, my lovely Lucy told me something before I left. She says, Joe, your walk is louder than your talk. I speak at a lot of Alcoholics Anonymous conventions all over the world every year. And I got to tell you, the one thing that makes me feel the best is coming here and talking to you people. There's something that Jim told me whenever he talked to me, and I'd like to share this with you all. When, he, when I called him, when Kate Holy asked me to call, and I called Mr. Willis and I talked to him, he said, Joe... Somewhere in your, he says, you have two secrets, and, and every person out here, I promise you, you've got two secrets, and they're two secrets that you may not even know about yourself, but the same two secrets that I had about myself. And the first one is, you always knew you wanted to love and be loved more than you were ever able to give or receive. And the second secret is, you always knew you were smarter than you were ever able to demonstrate. And for those two inabilities, you found it and you blamed it on other people, places, and things. And the truth of the matter is, we just don't know how to do that. And that's what this program is. And here's the thing that changed my life. You see, I've been a taker, I've been a loser, I've been a user, and I've been an abuser. I busted, disgusted, and was never to be trusted by anyone that had any, that any, came anywhere within my gravitational radar. 
And he said, Joe, I'm going to agree to work with you. And everything I've received from my higher power through me, I'll pass on to you under one condition. And this is a non-starter. That you have to agree to pass it on to others. That's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, Bill Wilson, December 11, 1934, was in Towns Hospital. And he had this clean mountain wind blow. And he said that was his spiritual experience. The room lit up. He felt as though a, a mountain wind. He was on top of a mountaintop. Every one of us have had that felt before, right? And I'll give you an experience. Your lawyer calls. Joe, yes, sir. Yes, sir. What happened? They're dropping the charges. <gasps> a clean mountain wind blew through and the room lit up, right? But that wasn't Bill's spiritual experience. The embryo of Alcoholics Anonymous was this. Suddenly the idea that crossed through my head, perhaps there are others that can benefit from this. That was the embryo of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you, the guiding principle of Alcoholics Anonymous is found on page 128. You take a room full of losers, users, and abusers, and they buy this. Giving rather than getting becomes the guiding principle. I did a workshop up in, um, in somewhere in New York, and a guy says, hey, look, that's all real good, airy-fairy, new-age bubblegum crap. He goes, this is the real world. When do I get mine? I didn't have a good answer, but I got one tonight. It's the 11-step prayer. If you go through this process that we're going to be talking about tomorrow, the dice of God, as Emerson said, the dice of God are always loaded. You can't outgive God. It is in giving that we receive. It is in loving that we're loved. And it is in forgiving that we, forgiving that we are forgiven. And I hope to talk a little bit about that. I want you all to know, every person in here, I've been praying for you since to come in here and stay sober since June 14, 1993, every night. And every morning from 4.30 to 6 a.m., I'm 12-stepping in my 11th step. There is a God. May you find him now. Thank you. My name's Tim. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Uh, I wrote the icebreaker questions, so I better answer them, because that would make me a hypocrite. I don't want to be one of those. Why do you still go to AA after all these years? Uh, well, what does all these years mean? My last drink was on the 24th of July, 1993. I was 21. Um, on that day, I'd gone to a meeting. I'd left the meeting before the end. I'd already shared, so there was no need to stay. <laughs> After all that, I'd heard the people there before and they said the same thing every time, so there was no point in staying. And I walked up the road and the thought of a drink occurred to me and I obeyed the thought and for a slip to happen or a relapse or, or, or drinking again, whatever you want to call it, two things have to happen. I have to have the thought a drink would be a good idea and then I have to obey the thought. And I can only obey the thought if I am the ultimate authority in my life. And I was the ultimate authority in my life, so because my mind said let's go and have a drink, we all went to have a drink. 
And I went to the pub and I drank this and I drank that and I went to the off-license and bought a bottle of spirits and drank that down. It wasn't spirits, it was fortified wine. <laughs> I drank it down and uh, very, very, very quickly. Um, it was a Saturday afternoon and uh, I was bored so I threw myself in front of a car, caused an accident. Um, an ambulance came, paramedic examined me, discovered I was drunk, not injured. So they called a policeman who arrested me. And as he was dragging me into the police cell, said, why are you doing this to yourself? And I said pitifully, because AA doesn't work. And I'd been going to AA for six months and I was drunk, so by any measure of working, I, something wasn't working. <coughs> and that day when I drank, it was like opening the door to the magic kingdom, but the, the, the doorway was bricked up again. Whatever alcohol, whatever world alcohol had opened up for me, and it did open up a whole universe more colourful and interesting than this drab, wretched one I'd been born into. That universe was no longer available. It was bricked up. And all that was happening when I drank was I got physically drunk, but was mentally clear. And I couldn't stand that. So why, so why did I go to AA? Because there was nowhere else. Where else do you go? sit at home watching television for the next 60 years. I mean, you, you've got to go somewhere. Um, but why do I still go to AA? Um, there are several reasons. Uh, number one, I've been taught by people in AA. Uh, initially, I was taught and I've observed that alcoholism is a condition which is progressive and it's fatal and it's incurable. So it doesn't matter how long I've been sober, I've still got the potential to die of alcoholism. Uh, and even if something else gets me first, if, if I were to drink again, uh, I've seen what happens to people that drink again. I don't want what they have. And it's progressive. When I, I stopped smoking when I was a year sober and started smoking cigarettes again when I was seven years sober and it took me seven years to stop and I watched my father die of lung cancer during this process and the knowledge that the, the visual evidence in front of him, my father dying, did not stop me from smoking. That, is, that let me go when it decided it was going to let me go. If I were to drink again, drink would let me go when it decides to let me go. So I must never ever have another drink again. However, I'm capable of having another drink again because A, I'm an alcoholic, and B, left to my own devices, I become my own ultimate authority again. And then it's just a matter of time for those two things to come together, a moment when a drink seems like a good idea and I'm in charge. <laughs> and AA is the only thing I've ever encountered which stops me from being the centre of my own universe. <coughs> Um, and the key to not being the centre of my own universe is, is, well, the steps are part of it, and the big book is part of it, and God is part of it, but it's the home group for me. Uh, my, I have a, a couple of linked 
groups. Um, uh, we meet on a Friday and a Saturday. Because they're the most difficult. They were the most difficult nights for me when I was new. Friday and Saturday night. So we hold our meetings on Friday and Saturday nights. And after the meeting, we go for dinner. Um, uh, one is a big book step study. The other one is a, a more general big book meeting where we cover the whole of the basic text up to page one six four. The Friday night is very focused, the Saturday one is a broader discussion of what is in the big book. Uh, but importantly, after each group, we go for dinner, and we want everyone to come. And we tell people during the meeting, we go for dinner, we'd like you to come, and afterwards we go ask everyone that's new, everyone's visiting, please come with us. So even if they do go home alone, that they... They can't go home alone thinking, well, there's no one that wants to be with me this evening. And when I'm at dinner, sitting with people that I didn't, I didn't choose anyone in my home group, and I don't choose to sit next to anyone in particular. You sit, you sit where you sit, you sit with the people who are there. Not a little cliques going to this restaurant, another clique going to another restaurant. We try and all go together when we can. Uh, I dissolve into that group. And I'm safe. And this produces a spiritual entity which then carries me through the rest of the week. Um, what else does my program today involve? What are you currently struggling with? Uh, I struggle with myself. <laughs> I struggle with arrogance. Um, someone wants to find arrogance to me as an insistence that others recognise my estimate of my worth. <laughs> that they respect my wishes and accept my leadership. Being argumentative, obstinate, opinionated and overbearing. And I will act like that and then wonder why no one wants to spend any time with me. <laughs> Uh, it takes every ounce of AA not to destroy my arrogance, but to keep it within manageable bounds. This, this is after 25 years. This is... This is How am I handling it using the program? By submitting the actual seconds and minutes and hours of the day to the direction of a power greater than myself. So I say, what do you want me to do today? And what... what my power seems to want me to do today is to do the things which keep the show on the road, to fulfil obligations in my home group towards my sponsees within the AA structure and carrying the AA message to the outside world, to fulfil my obligations at work, to fulfil my obligations to my community and society, and most importantly, my family. And once you've done all of those and you do a few things you enjoy too, it's bedtime. <laughs> you wake up the next day and you start again God please direct my thinking why do I say that? because it needs directing because if it is not directed by God it will be directed by a lower force and it, I was never in. I thought I was in charge I was not in charge it was as though I was being dragged behind a galloping horse of my ego with my foot caught in a stirrup dreaming that I was riding the horse. But I was always a slave to my latest emotion. And I don't want to be a slave to my latest emotion anymore. My current experience with the steps, uh, I've, I've got my little big book here, and um, there's a little sticker for each person. I, I keep a sticker for where each person is. 
and we go through it page by page and they say what they got out of the page, I say what, what I got out of the page when there's an instruction. Um, I share how I do the instruction, they do the instruction, when they finish they come back. And doing this, uh, I can't remember the last time someone dropped out of the process. Very simple, very straightforward. Um, what's my current relationship with God like? I show up every morning and say, what do you want me to do today? Um, <clears throat> my relationships with other people on a good day, what I'm aiming for at the moment is to have no opinion, to be agreeable rather than argumentative, and to yield rather than control. And that, that seems to work very well. Um, what's the most useful thing your sponsor has ever said? Uh, I've had a number of sponsors over the years. Um, uh, the one that set the ball rolling, and I'm going to finish on this point, I said I was depressed, I, and I was. I was clinically depressed in, the, in terms of I matched the clinical symptoms of depression. Uh, the description did not define the cause, it defined the state. I matched the clinical symptoms of depression. And my sponsor very boldly said to me, he said, you're not depressed, your life is depressing. If I lived life the way you lived life, with your beliefs, with your values, with your attitudes, with your judgments, with your treatment of other people, with your whole being, I would be depressed as well. <laughs> would you like to learn to live differently? And he was a man who was effective in his life and efficient and harmonious. He was cheerful and he wanted what I had, so I did what he did. And that's all I've got. See you. Thank you.